Hello, I'm Melissa. And I'm Daniel. And we are from Till Death Do Us Part podcast. A podcast where I share my interest in true crime with my husband. But I could honestly care less. But here's the kicker. I only tell Daniel cases of seemingly loving and perfect couples. They always say that, don't they? They do. But behind closed doors, these relationships are not at all what they pretend them to be. And yes, we tend to be super judgy about other people's relationships because it makes us feel better about our own. Honestly, who hasn't ever thought of murdering their significant other? I know we have. Maybe on vacation. A cruise ship, perhaps? What about some nice poison in your coffee? Sounds delicious. Or just a tried and true accident? Carbon dioxide, anyone? Join us every Tuesday as I tell Daniel the story of a relationship that has ended in a horrific fashion, whether that be murder or just attempted murder. If you like dry humor, snarky banter, and listening to an old married couple get on each other's nerves, then you'll love us. So remember, be careful. For marriage is a life sentence. And divorce is always the better option. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. (sighs) Okay. How's it going over there? It's going. Maybe I can make the day a little better. I think, you know, you and I have been trying to get um, this particular guest for a while now. So I'm really excited that we finally have her on and we are happy to present to all you listeners, little drum roll, if you will, <laughs> um, Julie, who is a forensic anthropologist. Mm. And if you haven't had a chance, you might want to go back in the library and listen to Hillary, who is our forensic anthropologist, because that episode, I think, ties really well into today's episode with Julie, who, again, is an archaeologist, but they work kind of hand in hand. I'm picturing like Indiana Jones. I feel like Indiana Jones, a little Jurassic Park. Kind of wish the mummy was thrown in there too. Yes. You know, like a little hybrid of like all those things that we love. Yes. Yes. Like that's what I just want. Like, yeah. Curious to see what, what that is. Cause I'm thinking like, does she find the Holy Grail or is she finding bodies that are from like 15 BC? Well, and how does that differ from what Hillary does? Cause Hillary's bones. We know Hillary is bones, bones, bones. She studies the bones, knows the bones, uses the bones to get information. So is Julie the one finding the, like, gravesite or... Burial ground? X. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know how Julie kind of ties into that initial timeline. Like national treasure? Oh, that would be great. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder if it's because you know how we talk to like a documents person and maybe she's all of that, like a documents and and like objects plus bones and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe maybe it's totally wrong. We're always totally wrong. Let's just get it. We're never right. So how about we stop trying to speculate and let's just get her on with us so that she can tell us what she does and we, we don't have to confuse the listeners. There you go. I like to speculate, though. I know you do. But really, I'm sure people are rolling their eyes at how wrong <laughs> we usually are. So <laughs> they're probably saying, True. Nikki, Mariah, could you just not tell us what you think it is? Because you're not right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's fine. Let's fast forward. Let's get her. OK. All right. I'm excited. OK. 
Hello. Hey, Julie, it's Mariah. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Very good. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to speak with us. And we are excited to talk about forensic archaeology and what that is and how it's different from anthropology. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for for reaching out. So what is forensic archaeology? Archaeology period is just the study of the human past and their cultures through whatever material remains may be left over. So typically you want to think of movie situations in which you see somebody's digging in the ground to uncover some type of history, whether that's like a building, a a village, a burial, different things like that. That's just archaeology as a whole. And it's a subfield of anthropology, which is just a really broad field that just studies humankind. Interesting. I love stuff like, I love history and I love stuff like this. So I'm so excited. Forensic archaeology work with forensic anthropology, or I guess, how would you explain that they're different? Because like we did have a guest on who spoke about anthropology and like we know that that's all bones everything bones they look at the bones try to get all of the information that they can from that so is there like a hard line that separates the two yeah that's honestly a really good question I think that's something that a lot of people even especially early on in the field that they kind of struggle with um and forensic anthropology is when you examine not only the human skeleton, but essentially the human body. Now, a forensic anthropologist is going to examine human remains, whether they're skeletonized or whatever stage decomposition the remains might be in. And essentially what they do is that they will specifically try to aid in the identification of that individual, maybe the events that occurred and the different postmortem or after-death changes that may have happened to the remains. Forensic anthropologists can also help with the physical recovery of the remains. So they will also go out into the field and dig up human remains. But that specifically is more so what forensic archaeology is. It's not so much looking at the full analysis of the remains. You know, you're not coming up with a full biological assessment where you're coming up with their age, their sex, potentially ancestry, their stature, different things like that, where you're trying to ID them, but more so in just the physical recovery of the remains from their buried or environment. So how did you how did you get into this, Julie? Like, how did you know that this was even a job? Yeah, I mean, it is forensic anthropology and archaeology, period, are not the typical everyday day job somebody has. <laughs> and I mean, I have to say, honestly, I've always really loved history. Like I remember, as corny as it sounds, as a kid playing in the playground in like elementary school, like I would dig in the sand under the slide and be like, oh, look, I found a shell. <laughs> <laughs> it was totally corny, but I definitely did that. And I actually went to college initially because I wanted to be an attorney. Um, but I very quickly figured out that was not for me <laughs> at all. Um, and I had just taken an anthropology class, specifically cultural anthropology, which looks at the study of human cultural variation. So looking at, you know, different types of organizations, groups, economics, different tribes and different things like that. And I just absolutely loved it. And I kept taking more anthropology classes and I ended up making it a double major 
And then I started to grow a little bit more into archaeology because I really do just love being outside. <laughs> and within archaeology, you can definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what's so great about archaeology is that you are actually out there physically recovering and uncovering history. You're able to actually go out there, find the sites, find the cultures, find the materials. And that's how you're able to tell that story. And I really fell in love with that. Um, but then I also took some human osteology classes, which is just a study of the human skeleton and anatomy and I really fell in love with it. And I had stumbled upon forensic anthropology, which was a good in-between and marriage of those fields. Um, so throughout my master's, that's how I was trained as a forensic anthropologist. But I still had an archaeology upbringing. So once I graduated, I actually went to work in the private sector outside of academia or government jobs. And I worked as an archaeologist, but also as a biological archaeologist, because within the field, that's kind of how it's termed, not so much forensic archaeology, but biological archaeology. What is biological archaeology? So the difference between biological archaeology and forensic archaeology or anthropology um, is that the forensic side is going to specifically look at human remains. That's what makes it forensic. Whereas a biological standpoint, you're more so broadening that range and you're looking at remains from a biological standpoint. So a lot of that involves looking at non-human remains, you know, looking at animal remains just as much, if not more so than mm. human remains. Okay. Where do you come in in the process of, do you, someone calls you, would you work with like the anthropologist or they come in and then you come in? Yeah, so that is actually going to vary depending on your location. Um, within the United States, you have to establish medical legal significance whenever you encounter human remains. So for, especially in the state of Florida, whenever human remains are encountered or recovered, jurisdiction is automatically given to the medical examiner, in which they would then make a determination whether or not the remains are from a forensic or recent context, or if they're from an archaeological or historical context. And typically that comes down to a dividing line in the amount of years. So some states will say, oh, after 50 years, it's archaeological. After 75 years, it's archaeological. After 100, etc. So you can tell when you come on, so if, I don't know, let's just say you came on a burial ground or something, and you can tell eventually you're trying to figure out if those are a hundred years old, 200 years old, Mayans or whoever, you know, that sort of stuff? Yes, exactly. So that was honestly a lot of what forensic anthropologists and archaeologists do, and even just plain archaeologists as well, that they work in tandem and in partnership with medical examiners or with state archaeologists to be able to help differentiate when remains are from which context. And if they are archaeological, then jurisdiction is then given to the state archaeologist. And usually the state archaeologist then partners with other professionals in their field. So that's typically like when I would come in and I would help to facilitate that and continue the analysis of the remains and see from then on what are the legal guidelines for that. Oh, that's so fun. 
Can I ask a clarifying question, Julie? Yeah, go for it. Because I, I think you just answered it, but I, my brain is not processing it, so I just want to ask you again. So when they come across remains, the state, I guess we'll say the state determines that if it's over 100 years old, then it becomes archaeological. But that number can vary depending on like state laws. Yeah, pretty much. So like a really good example and something that would happen to us all the time um, would be, let's say, for example, that somebody is just walking their dog in the park, you know, and they let their dog go off the leash. And then all of a sudden the dog comes back and he's holding like an arm. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope my dog never does that. I mean, I got to tell you, it happens more often than not, <laughs> but it's those kinds of scenarios. So obviously, you know, the owner is going to freak out. They're going to call the cops and then the police are, or whatever law enforcement is around is going to come over and they're going to investigate, see if they can locate where the remains are from. And then that's when they get in contact with the medical examiner and they say, hey, I have some here remains or I have a body. And then that's when the medical examiner will take over. They'll look at the remains. And at that point, they could also have someone like me, like a forensic anthropologist or archaeologist, help to make that determination. So that way they can figure out, okay, is this forensic? Like, is this a recent suicide, you know, casual death, just whatever? Or is this something of historical or cultural significance in which that's when the archaeology side takes over? Okay, so you you are mostly working on historical stuff, not Jane Doe, who went missing two weeks ago. (laughs) Yes, as a forensic archaeologist, that's what I do. But as a forensic anthropologist, you do a little bit of both. Okay, perfect. I love that. I saw this story, which was insane. And of course, and I had to Google it. And I think it was somewhere in Russia or in a cold area where they found this um, sort of like a caveman. He was frozen, but he was pretty intact, like from thousands of years ago or something like that and those are things that you would be looking into or you would be called on I mean there's not going to be like a frozen caveman in Florida but (laughs) (laughs) but you know like those are the sort of things that you would be working on is say they found a caveman or whatever and then you come in and you figure out what year they're there where they're from, that sort of stuff is what I'm getting, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, a really good example is, especially since I'm working in the private sector. Okay. So I work for cultural resource management firms. And basically, all that means is it's just a fancy word for private archaeology in which, um, depending on the state, but pretty much in almost every state within the United States and several countries even, um, whenever you want to build something, Let's say you want to build a building or you want to add to your home, different things like that. In order to get the proper permitting, you have to have an environmental survey of the physical ground that you're going to build on to make sure that there isn't anything of historical or cultural significance. So we tend to get a lot of those jobs just to make sure that, you know, if you're going to build a Starbucks, you're not building it over a Native American burial ground or an African American cemetery or a really important historical site from like the 60s or 70s, different things like that. Oh, I love it. How do you research that? How is that not, or this is what blows my mind. And maybe 
you can explain this to me, but how is that not already documented? You would be surprised when you look at different regions and different areas. You also have to look at the cultural history of things. And, you know, we are very fortunate that we're from the modern age. You know, we document literally everything mm-hmm. <laughs> under the sun, whether or not that's, you know, paperwork or your phone or your iPad or what have you. But when you think about things within a historical context, you know, we didn't have technology back in the day. So a lot of it was passed down from like oral traditions, for example, in which it's just stories passed down from generation to generation. And eventually those tend to get lost over time or they're just not as evenly dispersed to the greater culture. So, for example, like when within the United States, you know, we have our American culture, but there's also a very large Native American culture mm-hmm. um, and even African-American culture. And especially now when you're looking at a lot of the recent archaeological discoveries, especially in Florida, there's quite a few African-American cemeteries that are coming up in which they weren't documented at all. And that was because there were segregation laws, even not only for people who are living, but also people who were dead and in which, you know, they weren't allowed to have fully established cemeteries or if they were, they would have to be, you know, very impoverished off to the side on the side of the road different things like that oh yeah it happens all the time and then because there weren't these laws to help protect these cultural sites or these remains that people over the years have just developed on top of or directly through it whether knowingly or unknowingly so a lot of it that is insane to me yeah like there was oh i forget which specifically it was but i mean even just for my thesis research i had examined an abandoned and forgotten african-american cemetery in Florida, in which the only reason we discovered it was, and there's no documentation about it whatsoever, except for one document because of a tombstone of an individual from the military that was interred there. But if we wouldn't have had that document, no one would have ever known about the remains unless they physically dug in the ground. And there's no markers, there's no gravestones, there's no nothing. No, I mean, you have to think about even today, you know, if anybody has been unfortunate enough to have to go and purchase those items, they are quite expensive. Yeah. And that's even in today's economy. So when you think about back then having the resources and the financial resource to be able to actually purchase those items is very difficult. That is so crazy to me because you would think that, I mean, I just when you hear the word cemetery, I think a fence, a gravestone, all of that. Yeah, I never would never would have thought that. That's wild to me. Wow. Yeah, it definitely happens. And I mean, even there are scenarios in which, you know, there are those cemeteries where you have those tombstones, you have those grave markers and different things like that. But because they turn into disarray, meaning that they aren't actually taken care of, you know, the earth is going to take over eventually. <laughs> um, so Plants are going to grow over it. It's actually going to go into the stones and the grave markers and just break them apart. Um, we essentially term that bioturbation in which just the actual environment is going to disturb um, and change or alter different aspects, whether or not that's human remains or a stone or a coffin and different things like that. So, you know, within a couple years, something that was fully standing and you could perfectly see it during the day now is going to be completely desolate and you would never, ever 
know that there was something there. Are you seeing, and this might be a really stupid question, so say you've got a spot and you found a, let's just say a battleground, are you seeing clothes and weapons? Are those at that point, because it's been so long, the earth has taken over those as well? It depends. It truly depends. And that actually is more specifically related to taphonomy. And like I was mentioning earlier, that bioturbation in which you're examining the buried environment. Mm. And that's not just for human remains. It could be for artifacts, for ecofacts, different things like that. And that's when, you know, you're looking at the, the specificities of the soil, specifically if it's a buried environment, but it can also be outside of it. So like for that example, if it was a burial ground, it depends if you're in really acidic soils, you know, even for a normal person, when you hear the word acidic, that tends, you know, not to be a good word. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you would think, okay, that's probably going to affect the cultural material that you're encountering. And Aside from not only that, it also depends on the physical materials that that cultural material is made from. So it, for example, if you find, if you have like a wood artifact, depending on the environment, that wood may not preserve as well as like metal, for example, or clay. And even then, it really just depends on the artifact itself and what it's comprised of, as well as the buried environment or the contextual environment which is found how do you figure out how old that bone is yeah so there are actually quite a different quite different ways and varied ways in which you're able to make that determination and it really just depends on whatever resources are available to you most people are typically going to hear about or know about radiocarbon dating and that basically what you do is that you're doing a chemical analysis on the remains in which you're able to observe how much carbon the remains have released. And that's going to give you a general age range. It's usually pretty good, but it can also be very expensive. And there are only certain labs that can do that. So that resource may not be readily available to you either. Okay. But there are other things that you can do as well. So especially when you're looking at human remains... One of the best things that you can find are artifacts, looking at different contextual clues, you know, whether or not, let's say you found some remains and you're able to find some, you know, the burial outline, whether or not they are buried in a certain shape. Okay. As For example, let's say like the wood would degrade. You're able to see if it's a coffin versus another type of burial material. And that usually is able to give you a good inclination as to the time period. You can also look at... Really? Oh, yeah. Um, like when did wood coffins start? Was that like in the 1800s during the Western time? Oh, definitely. It definitely existed during that time. But there were very different variations depending on where you're from. Mm. Uh, so within what region... It could also vary depending on your cultural practice. So, for example, when you think of, you know, how would the Amish bury somebody as opposed to us in the, not to say, just the greater culture, you know, we would have different trends. You know, at some point we transitioned from wood coffins and caskets to lead coffin and caskets in which they're made out of metal and different things like that. The metal ones, does that break down in the soil? It does and it doesn't. Um, unfortunately, it more so affects the remains themselves. Oh, really? Oh, yes. And 
Honestly, it is a very interesting <laughs> experience whenever you run into a lead coffin. And as gross as it sounds, you tend to find people soup, <laughs> even if it's hundreds of years old. Really? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that's crazy. Definitely. Wow. And then can you see, obviously, if it's a boy or a girl, a child of whatever. So you would, you would get more information from that, I would gather, right? Oh, definitely. And sometimes you can even gather those clues if you don't have the physical remains. So cemeteries, for example, are a really good context for that because they're so rich in artifacts for the most part. So for example, let's say that you, you know, find a few remains, but they're so brittle, they're so broken down, they've been so disturbed that it's really hard for you to truly make a good determination as to if you have like juveniles or adults, if you have younger people, elderly people, more males, more females, you can look at the different type of grave goods or the coffin hardware, especially. And you can look at those trends throughout that region or that culture, like in Florida, and a lot of the southeastern US, typically within like the 1900s, the 1800s, you would mark a child burial with a lamb effigy. So oh. let's say within that context, you find, you know, you don't really have good skeletal analysis available to you, but you have, let's say, four lambs and then two like angels or whatever, then you're able to help determine, okay, I know I at least have four juveniles somewhere in here. That's crazy. You can learn about the history of it. And there are different type of animals that are used or different type of effigies and symbols and things. Um, but a lamb specifically is used just because it's taken typically back to Christian mythology and Christian Catholic culture. Your job's fun. I love history, so I'm all into it. I think this is awesome. I mean, you have to kind of study different, almost you have to kind of know everything or I would think. If you find something and then you just kind of snowballs and you got to research a lot of stuff, timeframes and years and years and years and years ago stuff. Definitely. But that's honestly one of the exciting aspects. Totally. In a way, you're kind of like a forever student. You're always learning. You're always uncovering new histories, new cultures. Yeah. Um, little tidbits. It kind of turns into like a scavenger hunt. But that also is a really big aspect of what is actually required legally whenever you do these type of excavations or digs or recoveries. You have to have some type of background research of the physical land as well as the general culture and how it pertains to the time period. So you're able to kind of have a snapshot of what is the context for whatever it is that you're dealing with. I love it. Do you ever have bodies that you've found and maybe a box that's stored with little trinkets that maybe someone has buried with the person or that doesn't usually happen? No, I would say that tends to happen sometimes. You know, there's this idea of grave goods or burial goods and you see that all throughout history. You know, you see that from thousands of years ago to today. And it's just this, it's this idea of, you know, you're leaving someone and they're leaving you and you want to have things, whether it's for yourself or for them, that helps them feel more comfortable, helps you feel more comfortable and helps to represent them as who they were. I get that because we do that with or I do that with people that have passed. 
I always like to have them to have something that they liked. Like my grandpa loved to smoke his cigarettes and, and have a Coors Light. So we put that in his little, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he got cremated, oh, but we yeah. put it in his little, um, you know, I don't even know what it's called. The little mausoleum thing that you put him in. Yes. So I would assume that maybe <laughs> years and years later, somebody's going to be like, why is this guy got cigarettes and a Bud Light? If it ever, <laughs> you know, if it ever gets stumbled across. But yeah, I <laughs> yeah, get that. I, I get mean, it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it's something that is soothing for the individual, but it can also be a cultural practice too. I mean, you know, like when you look at really historical burials, you know, like from Vikings or warriors or Greek, Roman, Mayan, you know, what have you, they're going to have different types of cultural artifacts and ecofacts that would typically accompany a burial. Yeah. Oh, have you ever stumbled across stuff like that? Like anything really, really, really old? I have. I've actually been very fortunate and I've had quite a lot <laughs> of different archaeological experiences and anthrop- anthropological ones as well. And I actually got my upbringing in archaeology in I study in the United States, but my mom, so I'm first generation American. My mom is from El Salvador and my dad is Vietnamese. Okay. And we would go to El Salvador almost every single year. Um, it was just something that you know, it was really nice being able to be a part of that culture, seeing where, you know, she's from, seeing where the family's from, being close to that family and whatnot. And there are several Mayan sites. So El Salvador is actually the smallest country in Central America. And it is one of the most furthest south extensions of Mayan cultural evidence. So over there, you're able to see so much history. And I was really fortunate to be able to be a part of one of those sites and be able to actually be a part of that was one of the best experiences of my life. That's so awesome. Did you ever, were you ever into like dinosaurs or that's just a totally different thing that archaeologists, I mean, archaeologists, I know there's the, obviously the dinosaur archaeologists and all that type of stuff. Did you ever want to go that path or you always wanted to go this path? I mean, I can definitely tell you, even today, I love dinosaurs, <laughs> especially dinosaur <laughs> skeletons. I mean, come on. But I have to say, I I knew that I always loved people <laughs> and their cultures more than like animals or dinosaurs. And even so within archaeology or anthropology as a whole, there are those subfields too. So like I am a forensic archaeologist, anthropologist, or a biological anthropologist archaeologist whereas you know there are zoo archaeologists for example in which they specifically examine only animal remains that's their whole gambit okay but then you could also be like a paleontologist in which that's more so in the realm of looking at dinosaurs i would like the people aspect of it too the dinosaurs would be cool as like a little side bonus but yeah i I would the people and the history of the land and people and I love anything history whether it's dinosaurs or (laughs) you know 10 minutes ago I think it's fun I don't know (laughs) (laughs) no I totally agree I mean if I ever find a dinosaur I'd be so excited (laughs) right 
I swear, I just saw this thing where the lakes are drying up, you know, because there's a drought places and whatever. And they found dinosaur tracks. I literally watched this 30 minute thing about dinosaur tracks this morning that they found in this lake bed that's dried up. And it was so fascinating to me. It's just the tracks. It's not bones. But I'm thinking, how has that even stayed preserved like that for you know, all of these thousands and thousands of years underwater and you can see the little claw marks. It's cool. I love it. I love stuff like that. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. No, it's funny because I've actually been following that, too. I had a couple (laughs) of family and friends that were like, oh, my God, do you know anything about this? And yeah, I mean, it's just it's so interesting. And I think especially because of the line of work that I'm in and the experiences that I've had that it really does show that life has a way of preserving no matter what. And as much as, you know, it can be degraded or it can be altered and changed, there's still a marker. And I think that's one of the best parts also of looking at a human skeleton, for example. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you're just, you're looking at bones. What the heck can you tell from bones? But skeletons and osseous material and bones, they carry markers of the different life ways that whatever organism especially humans have lived and that is really beautiful to me can you pull out like i know this might be a really dumb question but is there blood and bones still that old or no they're dried up well again it depends it really just depends on the context in which it's in how old it is the burial environment whether or not it's been treated by different things so like i always remember being fortunate enough to work with the medical examiner on some forensic cases in which they had found some remains that had some pigmentation on them, but they're fully skeletonized. We were able to do analysis and we were able to show that it was actually still blood that was on the remains, which was surprising because it's fully down to bone. You know, there's absolutely nothing else. And we were able to determine that it was actually used ritualistically afterwards. Really? Because I was thinking like, you know how like in Jurassic Park, they take the mosquito and I thought I'm always like, I wonder if they could take the blood and turn into a dinosaur. And I was thinking maybe there's a remnants of blood. And can you put that in like, say, ancestry database and then you can maybe locate an ancestor or that would never work? Well, it can and it can't. Not necessarily with blood, but looking at the more molecular structure under that. So, for example, like looking at DNA and genomes and stuff. And, you know, everybody is so familiar with like Ancestry and me, you know, yeah. and me, different things like that. Yeah. Um, and that's really where a lot of that started. It had started in archaeological study in which we were specifically typically looking at human variation So looking at the human past, trying to figure out how are we all interrelated? You know, how is it that humans have spread across the entire world and we're so different, but we're still the same species and trying to determine, you know, how, where did we start? How did we start? How are we related? And how does that relate to, you know, human evolution? How are we all related to each other on a biological and genetic level? And a lot of that started, you know, when you think about human evolution, you're not going to find, you know, some pretty little all put together, you know, full flesh and bone, you know, you're really lucky if you find, for example, just a tooth or even a fragment of a tooth. So those situations, 
you know, all you have is that osseous material. And if you're fortunate enough, then you have just the right amount or just the right context in which some of that is preserved and you're able to do that analysis to see. Because, you know, I know like on Ancestry and Me or something, one of those, you're able to see like what percentage Neanderthal you are, you know, and that's how you're able to do that. Yeah. I love, I do Ancestry um, just because I thought I would be like related to the queen or something, but (laughs) (laughs) me and my aunt do it. I love it. And it's just so fascinating. Julie, I was wondering, could you walk us through like a project or a case that you've worked on that just kind of helps us better understand like what you do on a day to day? Yeah, definitely. So typically, let's say my normal day to day job, because I'm specifically in an archaeological firm. Typically, what would happen is let's say that somebody is going to build a condo in a downtown busy area and there were no previous surveys because the last time that that you know it's just it's an empty parking lot and it's been that way for like the past 30 years you know nobody's built on top of it since then or before that it you know there's really not much history to it and then somebody a developer is coming in and hey i want to build a condo all right so now we have to take apart that parking lot and that foundation so that we can actually investigate the physical ground that that condo is going to be built on. And we can see, you know, do our cultural resource survey in order to see whether or not there is something of cultural historical significance. So we would start digging, you know, at first there are within archaeological survey and excavation, there are three different phases. There's a phase one, phase two, and three. And basically, They're just different ways in which, depending on what you find, it's going to activate different parts of that process. So you would start out just doing, you know, a couple little digs throughout the area. And let's say, oh, wow, we found something. It's really cool. Oh, we keep finding more and more. Okay, this is now turned from a small project into a large one. You're now going to activate another phase of excavation. And then, all right, let's broaden our dig a little bit more. We're going to dig bigger units. We're going to be more meticulous and try to really break down the context. Okay, what is it that we have here? And let's say we find it's really big. We're finding these really awesome artifacts. This is definitely something. Then you're going to go into the next phase, which is going to be the most detailed work that you're going to do. That's when you're really going to try to find as much as you can. And you're going to try to determine the significance and what is that specific site that you're on. And let's say within that process, you end up finding human remains. That would then go through an entire other process in which you would contact the proper authorities, different legal guidelines would be enacted, but essentially, let's say everybody says, all right, it's A-OK, continue on, but you, at that point, you have to have someone like me who would help to oversee that the remains are being proper properly handled, properly recovered, and that they can be analyzed afterwards so you can understand, again, what is the context? Why are there remains here? And different things like that. So then that's what I would do. Then we would wrap that up and we would go into the report process, turn that in, and then see what happens from there. And then I'm assuming like when you guys do stumble across like remains that have been found, do you guys ever relocate everything and then allow the 
condo building to be built there? Or is it like a hard and fast rule that like once human remains are found, it becomes kind of like a protected area? It is not. It definitely varies. And that's where the cultural consultation and we we deem it as mitigation. That's where you know, that occurs in which you're able to get every party that's involved. So typically at that point, you're going to have a state entity, you're going to have the archaeological firm, you're going to have the condo representatives, you're going to have all the interested parties there in order to determine what is the best way to remediate the situation in which all parties are able to get what they need. And, you know, let's say you only find like one or two burials and they're not anything super significant not saying that burials aren't in you know insignificant but uh you know it's not something it's not like a a native american burial ground or something like that typically whenever you run into that that's when an entirely different set of legal guidelines are then followed and typically whenever that happens you are not building you have just lost that you got to relocate But I mean, we've run into that a lot, honestly, with a lot of pipeline work in which, you know, Hmm. we'll say, oh, we found so many sites that are along the specific corridor that you want to build a pipeline on. And then we let them know like, okay, all right, let's just leave that in place. You know, we don't want to disturb it. We want to protect it. Let's go around it. And they try to reroute it so that way they're still able to build their pipeline and we are still able to do our due diligence and protect the cultural resource. How long are you is that process weeks months oh it can take a long time (laughs) (laughs) it it really just depends on you know what is the project how long the project is going how much you found you know it's it can vary it could take a couple weeks it could take a couple years it just depends so every spot of land that is sold anywhere like you want to buy a house you want to you bought a house that has land like everything has been surveyed like I'm not going to go buy a house in wine country that has three acres and then half of it's like a burial ground that I don't know about because that's already been taken care of or can things just be overlooked and you could be on a burial ground and you don't know it you could be and that honestly has a lot to do with the way that the legal protection legal guidelines have been enacted and also how they're reinforced But it can also be just depending on, you know, let's say that another firm had done the cultural survey a couple years ago, and those typically last, I mean, depending on what state you are, it's going to last anywhere from like two to eight years. So let's say that was like the five-year mark, you're covered, you're A-okay, you should be able to buy that property, you're going to go build a barn or something and all of a sudden oops I found something but there was a cultural survey you know what the heck I thought I was safe I thought I was covered but depending on how that survey is done you know we have certain guidelines and how that needs to be done but depending on how that was actually performed it might not have been in the best let's say, spatial spread. So, you know, you didn't cover every single part and just that one tiny little part that you're going to go build on, that's the one where it's at. So there's is a lot of little intricacies that can play into it. I always just picture like pet cemetery where you just don't want to build on certain places because then now you're haunted and you got a lot of crazy <laughs> things. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I, you know, I deal with human remains all the time. That's my specialty. But I do not want to live near a cemetery or on top of one. No, thank you. <laughs> That's bad juju. Yeah. <laughs> that would stress me out. I couldn't do it. And then I would be, mm -hmm. like, part of your job when you're explaining that you come across these, you know, burials and and. I, then I would think, oh, my God, what if I disturbed one of them? And now because we went, my husband and I went to years and years ago, went to the catacombs in Paris. And oh, yeah, I loved it. It was so cool. And but I was afraid of like when we we're leaving, they check everyone's bags and there's a pile of bones. And I asked the guy, I'm like, what's up with that? And he said that people were like people steal bones and they try to take them home. I'm like, there's no way in hell I am taking someone with me back to United States and they're going to haunt me for the rest of their life and disturb whatever that is. I was even freaking out with the bone dust that they have kind of like everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, it's on my shoe and they're going to come back with me. <laughs> Oh, you're so cute. But no, I mean, I totally get that 100%. But honestly, it's really interesting because you tend to run into scenarios like that all the time. Unfortunately, there is a really big black market for human remains. And there's a long history in that, you know, for example, you know, I've run into some anatomical specimens in which that's basically just a fancy way of saying, you know, an articulated skeleton that is you know propped up that you can see the full anatomy and whatnot and that's typically used in like you know medical schools and different things like that but a lot of those situations for example those were a lot of just grave robberies in which they specifically stole remains from impoverished areas or you know from that's crazy a really unfortunate situations like in asia um, and different things like that where there's just so many people but there's not a lot of space and you can intern them but then there's also the flip side of that too where you know you can run into like trophy skulls for example particularly from like the world wars the cold war different things like that in which it was a sense of pride to be able to have um, your enemy's remains that is wild mm -hmm. i couldn't do it i could not have you know bill sitting next to me for ever in my house. I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You don't want Bob on your on your mantle every night. <laughs> no, I no, I really, I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. That's crazy. no, I, hate you. I could never. But it happens. It does. Yeah, I thought that was bizarre. When I saw that at the catacombs, I couldn't believe it. I'm thinking like, why? Why? Who does that? That's crazy. That's where there's a black market for it. <laughs> Cause, oh, very much so. And nowadays, though, I would think that's weird to me anyways, where you can just get a plastic skull like at Party City. You know, like any anytime at Halloween, you know, full skulls coming or a skeleton's coming out. Just wait, get a plastic one. You don't need the real deal. That's weird. See, you would think, but I think especially with... The fact that it is, you know, it's bone, it was at some point a living entity, but also the fact that it's human. There's this really interesting cultural experience and dichotomy of this, you know, fascination with death and with the other in different things like that. So I feel like that definitely plays into, 
I don't want to say like the darker side or the more macabre side, but you know, it is, it is something, you know, I can, I can definitely attest to that, you know, when I was going in school and stuff, I was definitely interested in human remains specifically, but that is something that can be challenging, which you have to still make sure that you are being respectful of the individual. And honestly, that sometimes I run into that at work, you know, we are professionals and that we within the field, you know, we do this for a purpose, we do this so that we can help to protect these individuals, help to identify these individuals and put them to rest and give opportunity for their descendants or descendant communities to be able to properly mourn them and acknowledge them. That's great. But sometimes there's just this fascination of, oh, like this is, you know, I'm going to be able to do this, this, and this analysis. And you get really excited and it's like, well, you know, take a step back. Remember, this is still a person. This is still an individual. Yeah, I can see that. That would be hard to but it be, but these other communities and you are honoring this person, whether they were like 500 years ago or whatever, that's cool that they finally, I mean, it's not like they're forgotten. Exactly. I mean, nobody wants to be forgotten. It doesn't matter if, you know, you're just a lonely farmer or you're the leader of some municipality, you know? Seriously. Have you uncovered anything that's like shocked you or is everything pretty much just the same? Um, I mean... I would have to say there are definitely some things that still surprise me, but I mean, I can also tell you that like my, my gross level <laughs> is much more different than most people. Um, <laughs> and it's more so like as crazy as it sounds, you know, like I, I have seen a lot in the human body is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Um, so um i wouldn't say that a lot of things shock me anymore but it's more of like oh that's kind of neat okay (laughs) where i would probably think it's gross like i would be freaking out i have a problem with um smells and textures and mariah can't handle bugs and anything (laughs) crawly (laughs) oh yeah no, there's <laughs> bugs. Count me out. Oh, yeah, Mariah's not a bug person. Oh man, you would you would hate like cheese skippers and stuff and like maggots and whatnot that we run into all the time. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, um, but yeah, no. I mean, I've definitely seen a lot over you know my career and over my schooling and I've been very fortunate that I've been exposed to a lot of that. But I've also been told you know training like CSI or different types of law enforcement being like, wow, you guys are hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my question, Julie, is like doing your job, how has that had an effect on like how you view your own mortality? Yeah, um, I honestly really do love talking about that. Um, I think, you know, again, with this fascination of death and the other and the afterlife and whatnot, that especially within the United States, The culture and the relationship that we have with death is one that is so disconnected. You know, we are taught to be afraid of death, and that's even perforated to the way that we organize the spaces for death. You know, typically cemeteries are tucked away. They're in a certain part of town. You know, they're not... It's it's changed. Whereas if you look at, like, the history of cemeteries and, you know, in, like, the 18th, 17th centuries you know they were actually 
these areas where people would hang out. <laughs> you know, you just go hang out in the cemetery. You go have picnic on the lawn and different things like that. And it was a very different relationship with death. And then you can look at other types of cultures in which, you know, they have a very close relationship with death, especially of their ancestors and how they truly try to venerate them. And there are some cultures where they will mummify their dead and there's a certain cultural event where they're just going to bring them out and, you know, they they sit them in the house just like everybody. They have dinner with them. They dance with them and everything. It's It's really interesting seeing the different types of relationships that people and cultures have with death and for me personally it's really opened my eyes and the way that I view death you know I when I was younger I was pretty much like everybody else I was like oh my god you know I don't want to die one day you think of all like the worst case scenarios of how you're gonna die or you know you want to make sure that you you live your life to the fullest and different things like that and I think now over the course of doing the work that I do being passionate about it, that it's more so that I view death as as a friend. It is the the true guarantee of life and not that that means less or that it's this big scary thing, but that when that day comes, it's going to come and I just hope that I've lived a good life and I can say that it has made me more passionate about doing the things that I love and truly pursuing my passions as opposed to just living every day, day to day, because no day is guaranteed. I love that. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a great way to end your segment. I think, Nikki, let's do some of our fun questions. Okay. Okay. So this part, Julie, is just like silly, random questions that kind of help us like get to know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Um. So one of the ones that I always like to ask is, what is your favorite snack? Ooh, let's see. Mm. Now that's hard because I'm a total foodie. I absolutely love food. <laughs> I get very hangry and everybody knows me that I have snacks everywhere. I just have to, have to take snack breaks. I would say, mm, I'd say like my favorite candy is Sour Patch Kids because they're amazing. <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one um but probably my favorite snack would probably be like popcorn like i really love popcorn i love popcorn too okay well that goes into my my next my question for you is what would your last meal be Ooh. hmm since you love food honestly my last meal if i could have anything in the world it would be my family's like thanksgiving meal okay um love that it's so typically what we do is that we do a Salvadorian tradition of making like turkey sandwiches, but you like make the turkey just like you would for you know, like an American tradition, but obviously very different spices and different things <laughs> like that. But the recipe that we use is, you know, passed down from like generation to generation and my grandma has always made it and a couple of us have tried over the years, but that is definitely whenever I think of home, that is the meal that I think of. That's cool. That's a good one. You have anything to drink? Any desserts? Oh, desserts would definitely be a chocolate cake. Oh, yeah. Has to be. You can never go wrong with chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mariah, you have one? I do. Is there a sound that you associate with your job? Ooh, that is a really interesting one. Huh. Oh, <laughs> I can say that one that I associate is um 
So typically with my job, I tend to dig holes. You know, I am outside in the heat or whatever context I'm in, whether or not I'm going through a bunch of briars and prickly vines and or a nice open field with cows. But typically I just have a shovel with me and my pack. And I just think if there was a sound, it would have to be whenever a metal shovel hits like a rock that is like mm. a sound okay, that yeah. it just it irks you and you just you know it no matter what <laughs> <laughs> and as you're saying it I just heard it in my head all right one uh what is one of your hobbies I'm a very adventurous person but the first thing that came to mind um <laughs> it's definitely very I think Florida of me <laughs> I have a swimmable mermaid tail like a legit one and I'm actually a certified freediving mermaid and I what? love to take it out <laughs> <laughs> wait 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 how do you get certified as a freediving mermaid what do you have to do so you can totally look it up. I think it's through Patty, but there are other organizations that do it too. So you can do it with your scuba diving and different things like that. I'm also a scientific diver, so I have like all of that stuff, but I mostly do it for fun. Um, but I love... Okay. <laughs> but like, I love the water. I mean, you guys can't see me, but I actually have like bright purple hair. <laughs> oh my, I'm picturing so... you like um, Ariel, like when, like in her little cavern. Now that you said, I'm picturing like... Um, yeah, her little trinkets that she finds. <laughs> oh, definitely. 100%. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> it's definitely different, but I absolutely love it. 10 out of 10 recommend. Oh, what do you die? What do you look for like in the ocean? Oh, well, I love collecting shells. I okay. definitely wherever I go, I love to collect shells. I also really love fossiling. And like looking for those type of things. And typically like you're free diving or you have just like a tiny little air kit with you and you're just looking for old remains or bones of like shark teeth and like. Oh, if you find a megalodon tooth, you have to take. Yes, die. That is I would die to find a megalodon tooth for real. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I have one that's like the size of my hand. It's broken, but it is. Yeah, it is the one I am most proud of, and I am never getting rid of it. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. You just get more fascinating the more we talk. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) Okay, I think I'm going to say, what would you be embarrassed to admit that you hoard? Ooh, that I hoard? Oh. (laughs) Um, So it's not like super embarrassing, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> megalodon tea? i don't know <laughs> no i, I wouldn't say i hoard those but i mean so i'm kind of weird i really love like organization mm. and <laughs> like office supplies and stuff and i have a notebook problem like i love shopping for notebooks that are like super cute or pretty and I have way too many that I'm never going to use but I have to have them (laughs) that's funny that's we've never heard that one yet that's okay Nikki and I respect that we're old school we like pen and paper we appreciate a good notebook I love a good notebook (laughs) oh yeah I actually have kind of a lot of like the spiral ones that I'll get my kids for um school and I'm looking around in my office right now and yeah I have a lot too that I don't think I like write in one or two of like I'll do like the first couple pages and then I move on to the next spiral I never maintain the same one 
Oh my gosh, I do the exact same thing. Like I have <laughs> notebooks like for work. I have yeah. ones that are just like in my office, but I've never touched. I have some at home that I've never touched either. Yeah. And like, I think I told you, Mariah, but I'm actually moving to Hawaii and now I'm like so torn yes. because I'm like, okay, do I bring some notebooks or do I not bring notebooks? <laughs> <laughs> You bring the notebooks. I mean, if there's just a couple that you just think are just dumb and you don't need them, but at least bring your favorites, narrow it down. Like the Marie Kondo where, you know, you got to see which ones spark joy. Yeah, definitely. And may, maybe bring the ones that spark joy, but I say bring the notebooks. I'll try. Hopefully not too many. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Julie, you were wonderful. And this was so fun and helpful in distinguishing the two fields and how they work together. I appreciate you taking the time and spending some time with us today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I loved it. It was fun. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me. This was honestly really great. And I look forward to seeing what else you guys come up with. And, you know, if anybody ever has any questions, you can always shoot. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So what'd you think? Love the history. I knew you would. I knew you were over there geeking out. Yes. I knew it. Like dying. Loved it. But I love history. I think, I mean, I think she is the most energetic, fascinating hybrid of a person, right? Like you have this yeah. Indiana Jones character who is swimming like a mermaid part time. Every time she said, <laughs> I yeah. mean, with purple hair. Like you said, she just got better and better. Like you just keep adding another layer of like, yeah, I just love her. Keep talking. I love Julie. the, yeah, I just like the history of it. And it was a lot like the anthropology, but I think what mm -hmm. maybe separates it is the, I don't even know what the word is, but like the, the history part of it. You know what I mean? That's where the archaeology yeah. part comes in. Yeah. The historical implication. There you go. That'd be cool if you find a dinosaur bone. I just loved all of it. I really did. I mean, very interesting. And she's a very interesting person. Totally. The mermaid no, tail threw me for a loop. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. But I dig it. Totally. Into it. Yeah. yeah. She was great. I think she really helped define the difference, like you said. Um, and I think I could see her and Hillary working together and doing some cool stuff. They should, they should sync up. And they're both fun people. So oh, I they're think the they best should. people. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be fast friends. Right? Yeah. 100%. They really should be. Mm -hmm. It was good. They'd have a lot to talk about. Okay, well, next week it is then. All right, next week it we'll is. See, we'll see if we can find someone just as cool as a mermaid swimming archaeologist, which really, when you put it that way, makes her way cooler than Indiana Jones. So Right? And I'm telling just you, I saying. would die to find a megalodon tooth. Die. And she has one. Yeah. Again, there's another layer. Yeah, she. I was into her. I loved it. But super. We'll, we'll see if we can make next week just as interesting. Exactly. All right. I'll talk to you next week then. Well, probably before that. But, you know, for all you listeners, it'll be next week. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time. <laughs>